The following Knowledge at Warden podcast is brought to you by Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their financial goals. Visit Vanguard.com. Additional support for this podcast comes from Warden Executive Education. For more information on Warden's executive course, Executive Development Programme, please visit http colon slash slash executiveeducation.warden.upenn.edu. 2006 set a record for mergers and acquisitions worldwide. Deals totaled $3.79 trillion, 38% higher than in 2005, and 55 of the transactions were valued at more than $10 billion each, according to data from Thompson Financial. Europe was one of the big players, registering 39% more deals than in 2005, for a total of $1.43 trillion. The U.S. came in at $1.56 trillion, 36% higher than the year before. Private equity firms were major movers in this trend, responsible for 20% of global M&A activity and 27% of activity in the U.S., according to Thompson. How long will this M&A binge continue, and when it does come to an end, what will be the factors behind the retreat? Knowledge at Wharton asked management professor Harbir Singh, an expert on corporate acquisitions and restructuring, to offer his views on the M&A landscape. Harbir, thanks for joining us. Thank you. A recent report in the New York Times said that of 790 deals in the U.S. greater than $250 million between 1995 and 2001, only 3 in 10 have created meaningful value for shareholders. Why is this? Do mergers, in fact, do more harm than good? Well, I've been studying mergers for a very long time, and I think what's fascinating is that um, this question, this kind of question comes up uh, routinely uh, and has come up throughout the last uh, 15 or 20 years. And it's a good question. Um, it's a good question because, in a sense, mergers um, have asymmetric effects on different stakeholders. Uh, they don't have uniform effects across stakeholders. So there is always a, a degree of controversy surrounding M&A. Uh, so one way of answering the question is to say that mergers are, all, generally speaking, good for sellers. They're generally good for sellers. Sellers typically get about 15 to 25% um, premium on the pre-existing value of the firm. So they tend to do well. The evidence on buyers is more mixed. Buyers, um, the New York Times article says 3 in 10 but uh, a lot of research says it's probably four out of ten buyers tend to make money and perhaps even five out of ten. And so buyers tend to essentially pay the fair market value for the candidate. And what that means is that buyers really need to, if since acquisition is usually initiated by the buyer, the buyer needs to um, ensure that they have uh, unique synergies because just having synergy is not enough. Just having synergy uh, simply means that you will pay out that synergy to the shareholders of the selling firm. So it's good for sellers. It's uh, good for five out of ten buyers. There's a bit of a trend recently that suggests that buyers are getting smarter, that they are now avoiding uh, transactions that are questionable. Uh, they're not getting caught up as much in the hype surrounding an industry or a type of transaction. And also buyers are paying slightly less premiums. So I think when we look at this, three years from now, we might see somewhat different data. It may not be very different, but buyers may look a little bit better. 
The other way of thinking about this is, uh, so this is with respect to shareholders, but what about with respect to employees? There is uh, evidence that uh, in certain industries, particularly industries that have a high degree of excess capacity, that employees tend to not do well, employees of the selling firm tend to do tend not to do well in a merger in the sense that there are significant layoffs and so on. So it's a mixed bag for employees. And I think the last point I will make is, uh, however, that a positive net effect of M&A can be that uh, they are efficient ways to restructure firms and efficient ways to retire capacity and efficient ways of utilizing capacity. And and so in some ways, uh, mergers are a natural outcome of market processes. I think that's the best way to look at mergers. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, you know, one of one of the things that I find very interesting about the current uh, wave of mergers that seems to be, you know, rising higher and higher, uh, is the active involvement of private equity firms and also hedge funds to some extent, mm-hmm. uh, which are you know uh, uh, put a lot of capital into 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 these big deals. Uh, two questions there: Do you think that this involvement of private equity firms in mergers is going to continue? And secondly, is this a good thing? Or does it increase risk in the market? I think uh, both are very uh, interesting developments. And in particular, the rise of private equity in the last few years has been dramatic uh, in the sense that they are making larger and larger transactions. Uh, recently, Qantas was bought out at about $10.5 billion by a group of private equity partners. So there are some, there are many, many large transactions being done by private equity players actually around the world. So that's the other interesting dimension that uh, often these financial engineering type transactions were mostly US centered, but now it's a global phenomenon. So the question is, why do private equity people exist? Because they don't bring any new synergies to the table. So they're they're clearly not operating from synergies. So how is it that they can even function and pay a 15 to 20% premium on the pre-existing value of the assets? And there are two answers. One answer is that the private equity people actually are very good at restructuring firms. And they are actually able to um, uh, uh, break down the firm into certain component businesses and resell certain businesses and recover some of the premium. And then the remaining part of the firm is they find ways to create value by providing uh, the managers with uh, better incentives and also with tighter monitoring. So one way of thinking is private equity players are more uh, significant today because they have uh, they are agents for getting better productivity from assets. They're really not there for synergy. They're, they're there for improving the economic productivity of assets. And they're willing to make tougher decisions than pre-existing management teams can make. Uh, will this trend continue? I think so far the trend is clearly gaining momentum. Uh, however, I do think that there may be uh, an excessive momentum with respect to private equity uh, players. And I think that as uh, valuations in the market start rising, it will be harder for private equity players to actually have uh, the margin beyond their premium paid uh, to recover value. So there are two possibilities. One is that they are they're clearly very sophisticated buyers and they slow down on their own as they see the opportunities are drying up. The other possibility is that just like other buyers, they keep gaining momentum and then they are subject to the winner's curse 
and after a couple of uh, visible and uh, unsuccessful transactions that they will also start pulling back. Some people suggest that so-called mergers of equals are among the least successful. Is this true and if so, why? Yeah, this is a very interesting uh, issue because mergers of equals uh, have been, uh, you know, a ways, uh, people have thought have been ways to reduce the stress around a transaction. So uh, Daimler-Chrysler, the merger of Daimler and Chrysler was was uh, announced as a merger of equals. Uh, the uh, merger of the creation of Citigroup was a merger of equals. And we have several such transactions where the public announcement suggests that uh, both sides are equal. And it sounds um, uh, very uh, magnanimous and it sounds, you know, um, very comforting to employees and other stakeholders that this will be a smooth transition. However, um, there is not much evidence that mergers of equals actually deliver value uh, and that's partly because they may be denying uh, the actual reality that the firms are not equal. And as a result, the post-merger integration activities tend to become more uh, convoluted because there are actual battles going on behind the scenes, and yet publicly it is being uh, cast as a merger of equals. And actually there's some interesting research that suggests that uh, that so the question to ask is if mergers of equals are not very effective in post merger integration, why do people announce them as equals? And there are two possibilities. One is uh, to essentially uh, gain some goodwill in the early stages, to not appear to be very uh, very aggressive and uh, willing to make very hard decisions. But the other reason is that actually when you have a merger of equals, it's not clear who the buyer is and who the seller is. So actually the premiums paid on mergers of equals are a bit lower. And I think that may be the more significant reason that the premiums paid are lower. So one way of thinking about it is that if one can get away with paying a lower premium but integrate effectively, then calling something a merger of equals is okay. But if the merger of equals label causes too much uh, confusion and a sense of betrayal, then it's not worth the effort. Very interesting. Uh, you know, uh, when you were talking earlier about the uh, influence of private equity firms, maybe uh, in, in mergers, maybe I'm showing my age by this, but it sounded so similar to the junk bond financed mergers uh, of the 1980s, which right. talked about similarly extracting value by breaking up companies. Right. Now, is there anything that is there anything that makes the current wave of mergers different than past mergers? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Actually, the private equity transactions are not very different from the leveraged buyouts uh, that were led by buyout firms in the late uh, 80s and early 90s. Um, and I think, the, um, in fact, you can argue that uh, it's probably a relabeling of a of a pre-existing phenomenon, except that the degree of debt being carried now is not as high as it used to be. So there is a change. And so in a sense, the leveraged buyout activity was really in the 1990s was driven by uh, a very high degree of debt, as much as 90% of the overall capital structure. And uh, the argument was that when you took that much debt in a company that had stable cash flows, management became more disciplined, they wasted less money. And also there was a great tax incentive because you could deduct all that interest. Uh, but then uh, it became... Uh, very difficult to operate for certain kinds of industries with such a high degree of debt. So the current private equity activity has a lower level of debt, but is similar in other ways. The, 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 it's similar in the sense that 
there are no new assets brought to the table. It's similar in the sense that it really relies upon the buyer's ability to assess intrinsic value. It's also similar in the sense that eventually they will sell the firm at some point to shareholders again to recover to get the premium and cash out. I know you've done a lot of research on um, why mergers succeed and why they fail. If you had to pick you know, maybe two or three reasons in each category, what, what would you choose to discuss in terms of their success versus failure? Okay. Uh, yeah, and that's again. We are, that's a fascinating issue because, um, despite the significance of M and A, the success rate is uh, low. It is about forty percent, and that's surprising. Um, so, what explains success? Uh, I would say there are probably three major factors that explain success. Three, I, you have to manage three stages of the transaction effectively to achieve success. The first is um, target identification, identifying the merger candidate. And in that, um, being uh, being being willing to be different is important. Having a unique strategy, not following the herd is important because if you follow the herd, you're going to wind up overpaying. So I think that that's one element of, uh, uh, so that's, the strategy identification piece that also includes, by the way, walking away from something that looks attractive. I think that's the hard part. So I would say on the strategy end, uh, being willing to be different is an important part of uh, success. I think the transactional piece, which is the next stage, the biggest issue is to be disciplined enough to walk away at your exit price. Uh, There's a lot of uncertainty surrounding the transaction. Uh, it's very difficult in practice to assign a numerical value to a living and breathing organization. And uh, it's very difficult, therefore, to know that you have hit your ceiling price and you absolutely should walk away. It's very tempting to revisit your evaluation and say, you know, we can throw in a little bit more money because in any case, we were not clear about the ceiling price. There's so many intangibles. So uh, in a sense, uh, having the discipline to walk away and then the the third point in that area in in the transactional area is um is the tension and the complexity and the pace at which these transactions happen which can also impair judgment so you have to make sure that your judgment remains uh, reasonably rational through this um, through this high pressure and high velocity uh, stage and then the third stage on post merger the key success factor is to actually deliver on the sources of value um, and that's extraordinarily difficult, which is why not many companies succeed, because um, it is a complex situation. You're entering a different organization with its own history, with a, with its own culture, and also with some degree of resentment towards the acquirer. And I think um, a key success factor is to win people over quickly and to actually be able to implement the strategy which was the driver to begin with. So those are the success factors. Uh, in terms of why they don't work, um, fundamentally, the first reason is overpayment. Uh, it turns out that um, because the premiums are high, uh, it's very difficult to exceed the premium paid with the synergy you have. Uh, and uh, it, so even on the face of it, a merger is not an easy transaction, but it's made more complicated by uh, the um, excitement around the transaction and the market pressure to overpay. The second reason is cultural conflict. Very difficult to quantify cultural conflict and very difficult to identify and and quantify cultural compatibility. And the third reason is uh, that the cash, the actual synergies 
get delayed they don't come in when they're supposed to come in and in terms of time value of money that is bad enough that you don't make don't, don't create returns from the merger is there a merger that that you can think of where um they did everything right that you would do a case study on or have done a case study on I can go back to an earlier transaction which uh, which is good because we have enough data to now see whether it uh, you know what has happened with it and that is IBM's acquisition of Lotus which was some years ago and uh, when IBM bought Lotus they paid 3.6 billion dollars which was seen as a lot of money it was a hostile transaction uh, not from IBM's side but from uh, the existing management of Lotus uh, they were resisting strongly and it turned out to be an acquisition that was enormously successful uh, it was the cornerstone of lotus lotus notes became a cornerstone of uh, ibm strategy in the uh, world of distributed uh, distributed computing so that was a unqualified success that's great <clears throat> maybe we could ask you to put on your uh, gaze into do a little bit of crystal ball gazing for the rest of the year uh, do you expect any major mergers this year and if so uh in what industries do you think there'll be unusual activity well clearly one industry where we're already seeing a lot of activity is in telecommunications and you have uh the in the new AT&T uh and singular with a new with the AT&T name coming in uh and i think we'll see a lot more activity in telecommunications and the reason is that it appears that the economies of scale in telecommunications are such that uh, that we need larger entities than the ones that currently exist so that's one where we'll see continued activity we'll also see some divestiture activity as the federal trade commission looks at some of these transactions and feels that uh, there is perhaps monopolistic activity in some areas another industry where we'll see a lot of activity is in uh, energy and utilities um, that's an industry that is uh, consolidating a kind of at a steady pace because again uh with the rollback of state based regulation uh what you're seeing is the natural economies of scale are causing a lot of interstate um energy transactions and actually international energy transactions and the third area is um is financial services where with the uh use of information technology widespread use of information technology and the widespread availability of information um a lot of banks and insurance companies and investment banks are merging to essentially service uh, customers who want uh, bundled services so at least those areas will see lots and lots of activity great what's your opinion of metal steel's 34 billion dollar merger with arcelor that's a very that was a very interesting transaction and in some ways encapsulate some encapsulate some of the issues with respect to mna so metal steel uh kind of very much under the below the radar, radar screen uh, made lots of acquisitions of um steel companies in you know less developed economies and actually developed a system of integration of identification valuation and integration that was very effective so they created a system that allowed them to buy steel plants uh, quickly develop uh, make them more productive and uh, then also improve their product line and uh, create economic value and that was their process and i think when they got to arcelor um, they had done lots of transactions including inland steel in the us where they created a lot of value uh, but arcelor was a was a significant challenge because it's a major player and 
as we all know there was resistance uh, in in France and also in the um, EU uh, to that transaction and uh, Mittal had to take a different position with respect to Arcelor a non a less interventionist position uh, i have a lot of respect for mittal steel and i think they do, they've done a lot of good things the question really is since they've been forced to do something different from what they normally do would they be able to realize as much value as they were able to before now already we are seeing and uh, that that mittal is um, mr mittal is starting to assert himself uh, with respect to arcelor which i think is a good thing because they have to be able to implement their their strategies but then there's a delicate line that he has to walk because if uh, it's seen as a kind of uh, reneging on prior commitments then uh, there would be a lot of organizational resistance to his strategies so i would think that um, this transaction is going to be the one that will um, either continue their momentum or or really slow down their momentum in the future well, <clears throat> speaking of metal steel uh, you know we've seen in recent times a number of indian companies have uh, uh, become quite active in the mna area uh, the most uh, uh i think a publicized example being the tata steel's effort to take over chorus mm-hmm. uh could you speak a little bit about what's going on what your view of what's going on with these indian mergers and what's your prognosis we've actually done uh, one of my co-authors and i uh, professor prashant kale from university of michigan and i have done a study of uh, mna in india for the last about uh, 12 years um, starting from 1992 and uh, we found some very interesting uh, patterns that in the first 6 years after liberalization in the indian economy the mergers were mostly uh, were mostly successful and the reason was that uh, the capital market was starting to uh, accept these transactions and so there were bargains out there you know you could you could even buy unrelated companies and make some money but then in the, in the second 6 years roughly from 1998 to 2004 uh the market began to look more like the uh, international market the us market where you really had to have some unique synergies in order to create value so the success rates in other words have become similar to the us and also are much more around um having a a viable strategy and driving the transactions and not just uh, a deal making approach uh companies like the tatas and reliance and others groups like the tatas and reliance and others have developed um acquisition capabilities um through these transactions uh domestically and they've uh, tata has bought a lot of tea companies as a group it has bought um software companies it has also um done other transactions it uh, they bought daiwoo's assets uh, in the automobile side so as a group they have developed uh, certain capabilities to identify and uh, create value in these transactions i think the chorus steel transaction uh, there was a lot of due diligence done i think that is very likely to work in a sense it's similar to the metal steel concept you know coming in and and providing new and different ways of managing the assets uh so i think that's an interesting trend and i think that'll that'll continue as long as and i think they will remain disciplined because uh they're entering an international market and they know that they have to be very careful about hard currency so i expect that they, those transactions are likely to go well well uh, arbi thanks very much for chatting with thank us you. today thank you enjoyed it for more information please visit our website at knowledge.wharton 
www.upenn.edu. Music.